welcome to episode 229 of CXO Talk. As always, we have an amazing show. I'm Michael Krigsman. I am an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Before we start, I want to say thank you to Livestream for just their great, great, great support of CXO Talk. And if you go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk, they will give you a discount. So today we are talking about artificial intelligence, AI, and privacy engineering. And we have two amazing people. Let me start by introducing Michelle Dennity, who is the Chief Privacy Officer of Cisco Systems. Hey, Michelle, how are you? This is your second time back on CXO Talk. It is. You can't get rid of me, Michael. Well, I consider that to be a, a good thing. So, Michelle, very quickly, uh, tell us about uh, Cisco. I think we know who Cisco is, but tell us about what you do at Cisco. We are now no longer a startup. Sometimes I have to remind myself of that because there's so much innovation going on here. But we are the heart and soul of the network uh, globally. We support, um, I think we're up to 130 nations uh, rely on the technology that we serve. And most importantly for our chat today, I report to a fellow named John Stewart, who is our chief trust officer. And so for us, trust, privacy engineering, data protection, security, security engineering, and advanced research all live in one place in operations. So we are as much evangelist, forward-thinking innovators as we are operational staff really making this work for ourselves and our customer. So it's a fun place to be kind of at the, um, at the crux of Cisco's network and the, the gateway really to all of the networking that goes on. Wow. So we're going to have to definitely uh, be talking about trust during this conversation. And our second guest is somebody who regular viewers of CXO Talk are familiar with because he's been here a number of times. And that is David Bray. David is an Eisenhower Fellow as well as the Chief Information Officer for the Federal Communications Commission. Hey, David, welcome back to CXO Talk. Thanks for having me, Michael. And I guess you really can't get rid of me uh, since I keep on coming back. So thanks for having me. <laughs> and again, lucky me. So I, I think to begin, you know, the title of this show is AI and Privacy Engineering. And maybe we should begin by talking about what is privacy engineering? And then let's talk about what do we mean by AI? So, Michelle, what is privacy engineering? Excellent. So, uh, privacy by design um, is a policy concept that was first introduced at large. Um, it, it was hanging around for probably 10 years in, in the networks and coming out of Ontario, Canada with a woman named Ann Kamukian, who was the commissioner at the time of Ontario. But in 2010, we introduced the concept at the Data Commissioners Conference in Jerusalem, and it was adopted by over 120 different countries to say that privacy should be something that is contemplated in the build, in the design. And that means not just the technical tools that you buy and consume, how you operationalize, how you run your business, how you organize around your business, and getting down to business on my side of the world, privacy engineering is really using the techniques of the technical, the uh, social, the procedural, the training tools that we have available and in the really most basic sense of engineering to say, what are the routinized systems? What are the frameworks? What are the techniques that we use to, to mobilize privacy enhancing technologies that exist today 
and look across the processing life cycle to actually build in and solve for um, privacy challenges. And I'll double click on the word privacy. It does not mean having clean underpants or using encryption. Privacy in the functional sense is the authorized processing of personally identifiable data using fair, moral, legal, and ethical standards. So we really break down each one of those things and say, what are the functionalized um, tools that we can use to promote that whole panoply and complicated movement of personally, personally identifiable information across networks with all of these other uh, factors built in. It's not something that you're gonna easily paste on at the end you're certainly not going to disclaim it away with a with a little notice at the end saying, hey, by the way, I'm taking all your data. Cheerio. Um, instead, you're really going to build it into each layer and fabric of the network. And this is a big part of why I came to Cisco a couple of years ago is if, if I can change the fabric down here and our teams can actually build this in and, and make it as routinized and invisible, then the rest of the world can work on the more nuanced layers that are also difficult and challenging. Okay, so clearly there's this key element of trust, as you mentioned earlier. And David Bray, when we think about AI in this context of privacy and of trust, where, where do they intersect? Where does privacy intersect with AI? So I loved what Michelle said about that this is actually something that's not just putting out encryption, which I think a lot of people think is a panacea and it's not going to solve everything. It's worth going back to the roots of when did the Privacy Act come about in the United States. It came about when we started doing these things called data processing, or we were able to start correlating information. And the consent came, something could be made of these correlations if you given your consent to. And, and so what Michelle said about building beyond that and thinking about networks that really gets to where we're at today now in 2017, which is it's not just about individual machines making correlations, it's about different data feeds streaming in from different networks where you might make a correlation that the individual has not given consent to with identifiable information. And so for AI, if you think about it, it really is just sort of the next layer of that. We've gone from individual machines, to networks, to now we have something that is looking for patterns at a unprecedented capability. But at the end of the day, it still goes back to what is coming from what the individual has given consent to, what is being handed off by those machines, what are those data streams. And one of the things that I've heard when I was in Australia, as well as in Taiwan, as an Eisenhower Fellow, is a question about what can we do to separate the sort of setting of our privacy permissions and what we want done with our data from where the data is actually stored. Because right now, we sort of have this more simplistic model if we co-locate on the same platform, and you, maybe you get an end-user agreement that's 30 to 40 pages long. Most people don't read it. You either accept or you don't accept. If you don't accept, you don't get the service. And so there's no resostat, and there's no opportunity to actually say, I'm willing to have it used in this context, but not these contexts. And I think that, to me, AI is going to really raise questions about context of when we actually need to start using these data streams. So, so Michelle, uh, thoughts on this notion of context? Where does that come into play? Hey, for me, it's everything. Um, we wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Privacy Engineer's Manifesto. And in the manifesto, the techniques that we use are based on these really foundational computer science. Before we called computer science science, computer science, we used to call it statistics and math. Um, but back thinking about 
um, even geometric proof, right? Nothing happens without context. And so the thought that you have one tool that is appropriate for everything has simply never worked in an engineering. You wouldn't build a bridge with just nails and not use hammers. You wouldn't um, you know, think about putting something in the jungle that was built the same way as, as, a, as, a, as a structure that you would build in Arizona. Um, so thinking about use cases and contexts with human data and creating human experiences um, is everything. And it makes a lot of sense. If you think about uh, how we're regulated primarily in the U.S., um, you know, we'll leave the bankers off for a moment because there are different agencies, but the federal communications, um, the, the federal trade. So we're thinking about commercial interests. We're thinking about communication. And communication is wildly imperfect. Why? Because it's humans doing all the communicating. So anytime you talk about something that is as human and humane as processing information that impacts the lives and cultures and commerce of people, you're going to have to really over-rotate on context. That doesn't mean everyone gets a specialty thing, but it doesn't mean that everyone gets a car in any color that they want so long as it's black. And I want to amplify what Michelle was saying, that context, context, context. One of the things when I arrived at the FCC uh, in late 2013, we were paying for people to volunteer what their broadband speeds were in certain select areas because we wanted to see if they were really getting the broadband speed that they were promised. And that cost the government money and it took a lot of work. And so we effectively wanted to roll out an app that could allow people to crowdsource and if they wanted to see what their score was and share it voluntarily with the FCC. Now, uh, recognizing that if I stood up and said, hi, I'm with the U.S. government, would you like to have an app for your broadband connection? Um, maybe not that successful. But using the principles you said about privacy engineering and doing privacy by design, one, we made the app open source so that people could look at the code. Two, we made it so that actually when we designed the code, it didn't capture your IP address and it didn't know who you were in a five-mile radius. So it gave some fuzziness to your actual specific location, but it was still good enough for informing whether or not broadband speed that was desired. And once we did that, also our terms and conditions were only two pages long, which again, we sort of dropped the gauntlet and said, when was the last time you agreed to anything on the internet that was only two pages long? Rolling that out as a result ended up being the fourth most downloaded app right behind Google Chrome, because there were people that took a look at the code and said, yay, verily, they have done privacy by design. And so I think that this principle of privacy by design is making, it, making the recognition that one, it's not just encryption, but then two, it's not just the legal ease. It really is if you can show something that gives people trust that what you're doing with their data is explicitly what they have given consent to, what they have chosen to have be permitted with their data, that to me is what's really needed for AI is, can we do that same thing, which actually shows you what's being done with your data and gives you an opportunity to weigh in as to whether or not you want it or not. Can I ask either of you a, a, a thought here? AI is really at its heart pattern matching. And pattern matching is certainly not new, although it seems that we have built a cult around AI as if it is something new. <laughs> like it's magic. Sure. It, it, it is what cloud was five years ago. <laughs> yeah. So since pattern matching is not new and therefore the foundations of AI are not new and privacy is certainly not new, why should we even care about this topic in such an acute way? And also the ethical implications. Why should we care about this? So you want to start, David, or I mean, I think we both have a lot to say here. <laughs> I will defer to you if you want me to, or it's up to you. 
Okay, so I will dig in. First of all, I have to just um, underline anyone watching the playback, go back and watch uh, Dr. Bray talking about yay verily. Okay, how many people? That's like Robin Hood speak in the in the government. So yay, verily we we see. So I had to put a little verbal underline about that. Um, but as far as you know, why do we care? Why do we care now? And I, I've heard this in my entire career in privacy for two decades. Either it hasn't existed, or it's so freaking hard that only a genius could get it. It's kind of like which which null set is there? Um, AI. Um, first of all, I think taking a step back for artificial intelligence, you, you can tell like the way my mind is kind of matrix is like, what are we talking about? When we say artificial intelligence, are we talking about Skynet? That is like super secret magic? Um, or are we talking about a really huge amount of dumb machines that are gathering stuff from either observations, sensors, or the inputs of human humans um, and, and so the quality degrades over time, and then you're coming up with analytics. Are we are we back to statistics saying what what is the trend? And that can be artificial intelligence. If you think about um, weather mapping and how we decide which planes get to take off when, there's a lot of artificial intelligence and analytics that that come from sensors that that talk about um, what's the moisture in the air, what wind pressure, uh, what's the weight on the plane, what, how old is the plane, blah, 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 blah. All that data coming together so that someone can make a decision based on observations that we've not directly made in the moment, that can be a type of artificial intelligence. And it has impacts on lives. You know, whether that plane makes it is a really important thing to me, particularly when I'm sitting on there or someone I like is sitting on there. I, I may have a list otherwise, but that's an ethical concern. Um, I think the the other thing is why do we care? Why do we care now? Is the first 30, 35 years of compute has been can we make it work? And I think the next 30 to 50 years is can we make it work for us? Are we the victims of the only platform available is X and therefore we're using it and calling that trust? Or do we now legitimately have a choice of the quality, the kind, um, the testing of data and how it's processed and when and where it's processed? And, and I think that we are on the cusp of saying yes to that answer. There's enough information and, and capability in the networks um, that getting broadband out so that information can get to schools and rural areas or teachers can learn. Uh, there's an amazing program in Chengdu that Cisco actually helped after a terrible earthquake, and now we have the best teachers available. They broadcast their lesson plans the night before, and they broadcast them to over a million children in the outreaching provinces of China. That's the power of the network. And artificial intelligence um, can be a very big component of that. And obviously, there's other issues that we're going to get into of, you know, there, there are concerns here. We, we have to think about both the quantity and the quality of those concerns. David, we have an interesting question from Twitter. Scott Weitzman is asking a, a continuation of this thread. Scott Weitzman is, is asking, with AI, is there a need for a new level of information security? And should AI itself be part of this security? So I'll give the simple answer, which is yes and yes. And now I'll go beyond that. So uh, 
circling back to first what Michelle said, it is, I think it is great to actually unpack that AI is many different things. It's not a monolithic thing and it's worth deciding. Are we talking about simply machine learning at speed? Are we talking about neural networks? But that said, if we don't spend the time unpacking all of that, I think why this matters now is five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the sheer amount of data that was available about you through the Internet of Everything devices that is now being streamed to the Internet was nowhere near to what it is right now and let alone what it will be in five years. I mean, if we're right now at about, about 20 million network devices on the face of the planet relative to 7.3 billion human beings, estimates are anywhere between 75 and 300 billion devices in less than five years. And so I think we're beginning to have these heightened concerns about ethics and the security of data, to Scott's question, because it's just simply, we are instrumenting ourselves, we're instrumenting our cars, our bodies, our homes, and this raises huge amounts of questions about what the machines might make of this data stream. It's also just the sheer processing capability. I mean, the ability to do petaflops and now exaflops and beyond, I mean, that was just not present 10 years ago. So with that said, the question of security, I would modify Scott's question slightly and say it's both security, but also we need maybe a new word. I've heard in Scandinavia, they talk about integrity or being integral. It's really about the integrity of that data. Have you given consent to be having it be used for that purpose? So I think, yes, AI could definitely play a role, not just in making sense of, is this data being securely processed? Because the whole challenge is right now, for most of the processing, we actually have to decrypt it at some point to start to make sense of it and then re-encrypt it again. But also, is it being treated with integrity and integral to the individual? Has the individual given consent? And so one of the things that I've heard, this was actually raised when I was in conversations in Taiwan. Taiwan raised the question of, well, couldn't we just simply have an open source AI where we give our permission and our consent to the AI to have our data be used for certain purposes? For example, it might say, okay, well, I understand that you have a data set stored with this platform, this other platform over here, and this platform over here. Are you willing to actually have that data be brought together to improve your health care? You might say no. It says, okay, but would you be willing to do it if I see that your heart rate drops below a certain level or you're in a car accident? And you might say yes. And so the only way I think we could ever possibly do context is not going down a series of checklists and trying to check all possible scenarios. It really is going to have to be a machine that is actually able to talk to us and have conversations about what we do and do not want to have done with our data. So the issue then is this combination of data plus compute power, and you add those together with the, can we say, uh, advanced new pattern matching capabilities and techniques. And that's why we have the privacy, the new private set of privacy challenges. Is that a fair statement? Very much. I would say IoT plus interconnectivity plus machine processing, this is the storm ahead. Go ahead, Michelle, sorry. No, 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 I'll just add one more element, which is the carbon-based unit. Yes. You know, (laughs) we're seeing cultures come together thanks to the network uh, like never before. And, And sometimes that's wonderful. My daughter has a best friend in China and someone else that she's never met in Amsterdam. And that's incredible and supportive and wonderful. And we all learn great things. However, we are also exposed on a daily basis to the trauma of the world. Never before have we been able to witness mass 
problems. You know, when you turn on the BBC World, I didn't grow up with the BBC World. There were like two networks that were available to me. And now we are bombarded with information, better, worse, other. And so we're making decisions and we're seeing the world kind of recycle old ideas and hopefully process them in other ways. So when we're making automated decisions, it's absolutely critical that we understand and we are documenting in some way what those decisions are and what context. So it's like context on top of context on top of context. And we understand that sometimes, as David was saying, there are certain periods where it's like, do I want everything? I'm this young, healthy person. Do I want every bit of my health and aspects of my health monitored? Maybe not. Is that a decision we're going to make in loco parentis? See, I'm throwing a little Latin there for you, David. Um, yeah, I'm here for you. Um, are we going to make that as a society to say, listen, if only I had like put sunscreen in my water stream when I was younger, I wouldn't be like holding my face up with bandages at this point in my middle age. Um, or are we simply going to let people choose and educate them enough to make good choices? We don't have the answers yet. And that's why I think it's it's interesting and exciting and innovative to try to build out controls and ethical tools as we're building this, this brave new world. And I, I want to add to what Michelle said about the importance of people, because just as we know that human beings do great things, mundane things like cat videos, as well as not so great things too, um, so too will the machines. Machines are not... They, 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 they are an amplification of what we send and share with it. And without naming the name of a specific app, recently there was a story this week in which an app was bringing in people's photos and faces and it allowed you to make them animated. The challenge was when you click the beautification button, unfortunately the app's conclusion was beauty was lighter skin, which if any of us had ever said as human, that's atrocious. But unfortunately, yeah. that's, what the human, that's what the machine had been taught to think was beautiful. And so we need to recognize there's both the importance of privacy and engineering privacy by design, but also some sort of check to make sure that the machine is not going down a really bad path that is either incorrect socially, racially, whatever it might be. And we need to be aware of that. Plus, let's think about it. I mean, 10 years ago, most of us did not have lots of our health data online. And so we were not targets for having that data be stolen. But if you look at the recent cyber trends, where the real interesting attacks are trying to go after is actually after healthcare data, because that's huge value, unfortunately, in the dark web. And so there's also going to be questions of, even if you do share it and you give permission, are we now creating a new target or a new risk attack surface that we've not thought about as society? Michelle, I have a, a question for you, picking up on David's comment just now, this issue of bias. So with machine learning, we, we give the system data sets. And if those data sets have some inherent bias, then the AI system will pick up that same bias. And so are there privacy engineering considerations that come into play with respect to the inherent potential, the potential or inherent bias in a given system. Yeah, and this is this is something I've been really thinking hard about lately and talking to much smarter people than myself, uh, which isn't hard, sadly. But um, I there's a, a woman, um, um, gosh, I'm going to forget her name now, 
Elig. She wrote a paper called Moral Crumple Zones. And I just, I love the, even the, the visual of it. If you think about cars and what we know about humans driving cars, they smash into each other in certain kind of known ways. And the way that we've gotten um, better and lowered fatalities of known car crashes is we actually use physics and geometry to design a cavity in various parts of the car where there's nothing there that's going to explode or catch fire, et cetera, as a impact crumple zone. So all the force and the energy goes away from the passenger and into the moral, into the, the physical crumple zone of the car. Now that the analogy falls apart, you know, fairly, you know, readily. So, you know, don't throw your Twitter knives at me. But I think, oh, Madeline Claire Ellish is her name. I'm sorry, Madeline. I think you're brilliant. She's defending her PhD this month, so everyone hold hands out for, for Madeline. But she's really working on um, exactly what you're talking about. We don't know when it's unconscious or, or unintentional bias because it's unconscious or unintentional bias. But we, what we can do is design in ethical crumple zones um, where we're having things like um, testing for feeding, um, just like we do with sandboxing or we do with dummy data before we go live in, in other types of IT systems, we can deci decide to use AI technology and add in known issues or retrain that database. So uh, I'll give you Watson as an example. Um, and Watson isn't a thing. Watson is a brand, right? So the way that the Watson computer beats Jeopardy contestants is by learning Wikipedia. So processing mass quantities of stated data, you know, given whatever levels of authenticity that had or not. Um, and it could really simulate a genius person. What Watson cannot do is selectively forget. So your brain and your neural network is actually better at forgetting data and ignoring data than it is at processing data. So we're trying to make our computers simulate a brain, except that brains actually are good at forgetting. AI is not good at that yet. So you can put the tax code, which like would fill three ballrooms if you printed it out on, on paper. You can feed that into an AI type of data set and you could train it at what are the known um, amounts of money someone should pay in a given context. What you can't do, and what I think would be fascinating if we did do, is if we could possibly wrangle the data of all the cheaters. What are the most common cheats? How do we cheat? Um, and we know the ones that get caught, but you know, more importantly, how do we catch the ones that don't get caught? That's the stuff where I think you need to design in a moral and ethical crumple zone and say, how do people actively use systems? Um, the concept of the ghost of the machine, how do machines that are well-trained with data over time experience degradation. Either they're not pulling from data sets because the equipment is simply, you know, they're not reading tape drives anymore, or um, it's not being fed from fresh data, or we're not deleting old data. Um, there's a lot of different techniques here that I think have yet to be deployed at scale that I think we really need to consider before we're overly relying without human checks and balances and process checks and balances um, to rely on AI. Uh, so let me, let me ask, uh... David, what can we actually do about this? Because I think it's one thing and relatively easy to talk about it, but what are the implications for 
uh, policy for for the the private sector for people who are building these systems for corporations who are using AI tools and collecting these large data sets and for and for data scientists what should what what do we need to do so I think it's going to have to be a staged approach because exactly as uh, Michelle said, um, I'm going to throw out some Greek, which is experiments and expertise, both come from the Greek word experia, meaning out of danger. We are in dangerous times and we've got to do some experiments to figure out the expertise to move forward. I would recommend as a starting point, begin to have, you almost need to have the equivalent of a human on, on the budsman group series of people that are looking at what the machine is doing relative to the data that was fed in. And you could do this in multiple contexts. Either A, it could be just internal to the company, and it's just making sure that what the machine is being fed is not leading it to decisions that are atrocious or erroneous. Or if you really want to gain public trust, share some of the data and share some of the outcomes, but abstract anything that's associated with any one individual and just say, these types of people applied for loans, these types of loans were awarded, so you can make sure that the machine is not hinging on some bias that we don't know about. Longer term, though, you've got to actually write that omnibusman. I mean, actually, so real quick, what Michelle said is we need to be able to engineer an AI to serve as an ombudsman for the organization, for the AI itself. So really what I see is the future is going to be not just AI as one monolithic system. It may be one that's making decisions and then another one that's serving as a Jiminy Cricket that says, this doesn't make sense or these people are cheating and it's, it's pointing out those flaws in the system as well. So we need the equivalent of a Jiminy Cricket for AI. We have range. We've got Disney. We've got, you know, ancient Greek. I like it. You need to bring in Pirates of the Caribbean and we're set. <laughs> A little extra eyeliner for me. Maybe Johnny Depp. <laughs> okay. So there we have that word again, that word trust. Why does trust keep coming up as, uh, as, a, as a thread throughout this conversation? So I'm going to go all Brene Brown on you. <laughs> and if you don't know who she is, you really should. She's so awesome. Um, she's the author of books, Rising Strong, and all sorts of good stuff. I think at, at the root of trust and why we keep rotating back to that word, even in computer science, um, where typically, you know, a lot of people gravitated to this field because they're either afraid of humans or just prefer machines. Um, not that we don't love them all. I have Sheldon here just... Um, you know, we love you. Um, <laughs> but um, I think it's really important to, um, how do I put it? I mean, it's just to build this stuff in is, is, is essential. And to build it in as coming from the people that are attracted to a field that may not be human, um, it's it's so interesting once you introduce the notion of trust. So the way I I break down trust into two kind of factions. One is I'm on a mountain and I'm hanging on to a blade of grass and you're the dude with the rope. I trust you with my life. Why? Because I trust you more than my ability to fly. You're kind of the only game in town. Then there's the Benet Brown kind of trust, which is, I think, where we're heading with these very complex compute systems and the, the ones that feel simple because they're garage apps and they're easy to download and consume and throw away, but they're really adding to the complexity of the information uh, footprint that's around you in the network. And that is trust that comes over time. 
trust that says for better or for worse, like there's certain platforms, why people buy them when they're 1.0, I cannot comprehend. They will blue screen you every time. Wait until 2.0, people. We know this. We've got 30 years of experience. My trust says, I trust that you're going to release it too soon. And I trust that some sucker is going to test it for me. And then I'm going to get to it when it's 2.0. And that happens in a lot of technology and including cars and all sorts of things or buying a boat, right? You never buy a new boat. Um, the other kind of trust is the one we're really trying for. You know who I am. You know I'm going to perform for you over time. You know that when I make a mistake, I'm going to admit it and correct it to the best of my ability. And I'm going to have something or someone that is either a direct advocate for you, like a chief privacy officer, um, or a proxy, uh, which is going to be, you know, working with other um, people that come in and, and test our systems. You know, we've got consultancies all the time that test our ethical and our trust uh, frameworks. Are they really too self-centered? Are they only looking at our shareholders, or are they also looking at the quality of care that we're giving to all of our customers and employees? So those are the two kinds of trust, and I think they can be broken down once again as, you know, kind of, a, I'm like a broken record. What does it mean? What's the problem we're trying to solve? And how do we break it down into things that we know how to do? And then what, let's look really hard at the things we don't know how to solve for and either train for it, uh, have teams around it, have something else as proxy when you can't solve it completely and perfectly. Uh, David Bray, let me ask you something here relating to this. Yesterday, I was in New York. I was running an event, and one of the participants on stage was a senior person from IT who works at JetBlue. And you talk about trust. He was explaining how, in his world, there is there's no room for for technology error and therefore the trust level for uh, the trust level just needs to be right up at the top. How does this dimension of trust come into play? So that's that you set me up perfectly because I wanted to amplify with what Michelle said. When I was doing my PhD, I was focusing on how to improve organizational response to disruptive events, both the technology and the humans, because I like both of them. And the interesting messiness that occurs when you get technology and humans together, because there are all sorts of pathologies that arise. Trust was key. And I would define trust based on the academic literature as the willingness to be vulnerable to someone or something you can't control. And so the JetBlue example is, yes, I mean, when you're in that plane, uh, if that wing flies off or if all of a sudden the autopilot starts throwing into the ground, if you've lost trust because you're now vulnerable to the actions of something that you did not have direct control over. Now, there are three predecessors that if present, it's been shown humans are now willing to trust a person or a thing. If they believe that the individual or the machine or the system is benevolent, and so they're, they're, they have a, a good interest in mind for the person, if it's competent, so it actually is skilled at what it does, and then finally that it acts with integrity. It's not going to do when you're not looking something that you're not expecting and only behave on its best behavior when you're looking. If those three things are present, then you're willing to be vulnerable, then you're willing to trust. And so I think when we think about AI, how can we begin to instrument and show benevolence? How do we reveal that to the public and so the public buys into it? Competence is a little bit easier. Integrity is the hard one. And it circles back to that conversation where, again, there are experiments in Europe and Scandinavia in particular for this idea of how do you show integrity? Because Let's think about it. The professions, going back to the 19th century, doctors and lawyers, 
the reason why the professions are able to credential and actually self-police themselves is because they do actually find people that are behaving badly. And if they're behaving badly, they uncredential or they take their license away. You get debarred or something like that. What is the equivalent of the professions for AI, which is if, if the community determines that an AI is not behaving with integrity, we're going to take your license away or we're going to debar you. Because I think the public is willing to let the private sector self-police itself insofar that it sees that the self-policing is ex- effective. Otherwise, they're going to be looking for other options. I, I love this. And, and so I have to ask, the brilliant privacy engineer among us, uh, Michelle, how, how do we manage this integrity <laughs> issue? Figure we pose the difficult uh, question to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I, and I love the, uh, the breakdown is exactly, you know, on point for how we've even organized around this at Cisco um, with our chief trust officer and, and putting us, you know, we have, arms and legs in public policy, I have wonderful legal support, et cetera, Um, but this is not a compliance function. This is a integrity building function. Do we have the right people? Are they trained? Are they constantly actively listening to vulnerable clients? And those clients are not just money-making machines who need networking uh, or clouds or, or collab tools. These are people who are serving and creating experiences. These are people who um, have families. You know, we have, what, 70,000 Cisco employees, and they have families. And I, and I take every single day that I work here as a fiduciary obligation to make sure that these families are, are people are going home to their families with integrity. And I think part of that is um, really fascinating in the study of ethics of when you think about ethics versus morality, and this, you know, to anybody who's really a scientist, I, I apologize, I'm getting your, your terms of art wrong. I think of morality as like killing people bad. That's a pretty universal one, I think, I hope, killing people bad. Um, but if you get into what do I own as far as data, um, this is where my my ancient roots of, of patent litigator come out. And I say, it. I think about personally identifiable information in many ways as similar to other versions of intellectual property. It's a story that exists in someone's mind, in someone's database, in someone's um, diary somewhere. Together, the three of us jointly own the truth that we were here today and have this conversation. Everyone who's following us on Facebook Live or Twitter are part of this conversation. Each one of those little breadcrumbs is an element of personally identifiable information. Um, Who owns that? Well, if you're in the Western world, you know, there's notions of intellectual property. If you're in the US, um, we're having a kind of a change of sea change of what do we mean by being, you know, are we we the ethicist and the moral beacon of the world? Or are we really looking within our, our territorial borders anymore? If you are in Asia and certain other collective communities for 3,000 years, they look at intellectual property as selfishness. We look at it as stealing. Why are you taking my stuff? They're looking at us like, why would you prevent everyone from benefiting from innovation? They, you know, so when you have uh, a society that's split and, and you're still trying to prove integrity, what you have to do is be very open about what is your ethical model. 
And if the model is you get to control the informational stories that are told about you to the greatest extent possible without degrading the ability of everyone else to live their life with integrity and self-determination and for the organization to continue to be around to protect that data, that is, once again, it's, it's this um, mixed sort of complex use case-driven model of integrity. But I think part of it is, even when we don't know what the answers are, admitting that and saying that we, we have organized, um, we have invested, we are publicly confused, working with uh, external parties and our own customers to continue asking questions on what feels like integrity um, and talking about feelings in a large, you know, Cisco, we build that network, remember? We right now are the electronic currency, if you will, the current that runs underneath all of human activity these days. It's a huge responsibility. And as we're getting smarter in the networks and, and the demand is for us to curate more and more of that information along its way, we're also gonna be the curators of the world's currency of data. And so the notion of integrity um, in how you build in every single step of the way, um, from the policy to the build out, to the quality models, to the organizational structures that um, deliver that. Um, it, all of that matters and all of it has to be orchestrated together in, in one kind of beautiful package. Easy peasy. We have <laughs> literally, uh, we have about four minutes left. And this convert, it feels like uh, this has gone by in a snap. So, David Gray, you have this broad overview of AI and technology. And, and I have even heard you quote from the Federalist Papers. So, what should we do? Well, again, we're, we're going to have to do experiments. I don't think any one person has all the answers. Uh, I definitely don't tend to. Uh, that means we need to be listening to all sectors and all members of the public because, as Michelle said, there are huge variances of perspectives both in the United States, but also around the world. I mean, we didn't even dive into Europe and what's going to be going on with GDPR, and there's going to be huge questions about how can you even begin to show what an AI is doing with its decision making without sharing the data too. But I will leave with two main thoughts. First, as you mentioned, the Federalist Papers. I love to say. What is government but a greatest reflection of humanity? If all men and women were angels, no government would be necessary. Let's replace the word government with just civil society, public service. And let's add, instead of men and women, let's do men, women, and AI. What is AI but the greatest reflection of humanity? Because it is. It's us being reflected back. And that mirror might be a way to hold up and say, wait, is this fair? Is this right? Is this not biased or is this prejudiced? So I think AI can begin to be used as a tool to say, are you aware of these biases? Are you aware of these concerns? You may not even have been aware of otherwise. There's some good there. And then two, to sort of take what Michelle said about, I mean, the world has massive differences in philosophies. And I've tried to figure out, I mean, 3,000 years, philosophers still can't agree. But what I would say is the one undercurrent I see is, do unto others as they give consent and are willing to be permitted to be done unto them. I think that to me at the end of the day is, so we have to develop tools that allow them to express their consent, express their permissions, and then have it so it's not always asking you, because we can't answer these questions every five minutes, but have it be that sort of our, our own personal sort of open source AI bot that is representing what we give consent to, what we give permission to in the world ahead. 
And it looks like, uh, Michelle Dennity, you're going to get the last word here. It, in, in about one minute, uh, David said, men, women, and AI. So please tell us about that world <laughs> in a minute. And you only have a I only have a minute. Well, so I will end on a, on a high note, hopefully. I will add, and I, and I think they were implied in his list, um, children and this new generation coming up. I am the mother of 11-year-old and a 15-year-old who think they know everything about the world already. Um, we have our judgment and we have what we've learned uh, from the last 3,000 years of history to impart to our little ones. Um, they are growing up in a very different environment. They are growing up with um, far more technical might than we ever did before. And I think if there's one thing I would say to the world is don't count them out. If you think your kids don't want to curate and decide when they are a certain persona, you're wrong. If you think that your kids aren't interested in how their information is processed and how it's used for and against them, you're wrong. If you think that they aren't there out there marching with their crazy, silly signs and, and doing all the things that we're doing to really um, express a new type of democracy, you're out of your mind. I'm looking at the younger generations to really um, take a rethink and a reset of what are the specs and requirements for the hard-coded systems and how do we allow for flexibility over time and maturity. And as we discard some of these tools that we thought were so nifty when they first came out. Some of them will be like the fat jiggling machines of the 1920s. They'll just look silly to us. I'm waiting for the sock puppet character from the 1999 Super Bowl ad. I think there's going to be some that are like that. Exactly, exactly. And we've got, you know, we've got Grumpy Cat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like a selfie. I love that. And uh, are those the only real life emojis that you have, Michelle Dennity? No, I've got... This oh, is the Order yeah. of the Flying Pig, and, and I would like to present this to Dr. David Gray. The Flying Pig was, years ago, someone told me that uh, we only needed to do privacy for 10% of my time and to support my customers uh, because it was going away. And I said, well, when pigs fly, we will do privacy all the time. So I present you virtually the Order of the Flying Pig, David, because we're not done doing privacy, ethics, or AI. Very honored to be inducted. Thank you. And with that, it is time to conclude, sadly, episode number <laughs> <laughs> episode number 229 of CXO Talk. And what an amazing conversation. We've been speaking with Dr. David Bray, who is an Eisenhower Fellow and the Chief Information Officer of the Federal Communications Commission, as well as Michelle Dennity, who is the Chief Privacy Officer of Cisco. And I will extend an invitation to both of you to do this live. We need to have this conversation live on stage someplace in front of an audience. With the flying pig. As long as we bring the flying pig too, I'm all for it. Thank you, Michael. She's in. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for watching. Uh, check cxotalk.com slash episodes to see what's coming next. And like us on Facebook. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube. Thanks a lot. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.